Sound like history. It didn't sound like the future. It just sounded amazing. I, I wasn't thinking that we had made a classic album. I thought, wow, it sounds good. It announced the new guard in rock music, the new regime. I think there was a whole generation of people that were waiting to have something to follow. Nevermind is the second studio album by Nirvana, released on September 24th, 1991. Produced by Butch Vig, it was Nirvana's first release on mogul David Geffen's DGC label and was the first to feature Dave Grohl on drums. In early 1990, Nirvana began planning their second album for their record company Sub Pop, tentatively titled Sheep. More on that later. Nirvana was looking for Butch Vig to produce because they'd really liked his work with Killdozer. After signing with DGC, a number of producers for the album were suggested, but Novoselic said the band had been nervous about recording under a major label, and the producers suggested by DGC wanted percentage points. Instead, the band held out for Vig. And the feeling was mutual. Here's Butch Vig. I really wanted to do Nevermind. Uh, I didn't know if I had a shot because I was still really unknown and, and I knew that the, the major labels always like to have a, a, a tried and true producer at the helm. One reason why we decided to do Nevermind with Butch was how patient he is. And it was such a great experience working with him in Madison. And the label wanted us to work with other people, but it was kind of intimidating and we were comfortable with Butch. That's Chris Novoselic, and he refers to working with Vig in Madison, Wisconsin. That's at Smart Studios. And Vig talked about them getting together there and hearing the songs for the first time. They were doing a bunch of shows on the West Coast, and then they were coming to the Midwest. I think they played Kansas City or someplace in, in Chicago or Iowa. I can't remember exactly. And, and they actually had a gig schedule in Madison. And we set aside about seven days, uh, which was an extravagant budget for me at the time. Right off the bat, I was impressed with, uh, with the new songs because... Uh, they were heads and tails better crafted than the songs on Bleach. At the time they all worked together in Madison, most of the basic arrangements were complete. Cobain was still working on lyrics. The band was unsure of which songs to actually record. Ultimately, eight were recorded, some of which appeared on Nevermind. Imodium, which was later renamed Breed. Dive, later released as the B-side to Sliver. In Bloom. Pay to Play, later renamed Stay Away. Sappy, Lithium. Here She Comes Now, released on the Velvet Underground tribute album Heaven and Hell Volume 1, and Polly. More on that song, Polly. Here's Nirvana biographer Charles Cross on the song and its origins, and Chris Novoselic also chimes in on the story. Polly was written about a real incident that happened. A young woman was at a show at the Community World Theater. I don't think it was a Nirvana show, but was kidnapped and tortured, and it was an article that was in the Tacoma paper. She decided to come on to the guy and to start seeing him as a person and that's when he took his guard down and she got away and I remember Kurt when he read that in the newspaper was that really hit him like it was really profound he's like wow the most remarkable thing about Polly is that you know he takes the point of view 
of the torturer. Um, you know, in some ways I compared it once to Truman Capote, whose brilliant work in cold blood, you know, kind of puts us in the mind of this murderer and we eventually begin to understand that, that mindset. I mean, Polly is an amazing song. You look at that song and consider that being released on such a commercial record. Here's what Butch Vig had to say about Polly. Polly is one of the songs that was actually recorded at Smart Studios that was going to be for the Sub Pop album and ended up uh, going on to Nevermind. It's the only song that was done here that made it on to Nevermind. The song is very spare and it's very haunting. Sometimes the quietest songs become the most intense. So drummer Chad Channing left after the tour that took them to Madison, putting additional recording on hold. During a show by hardcore punk band Scream, Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic were impressed by the band's drummer, Dave Grohl. When Scream unexpectedly disbanded, Grohl contacted Novoselic, traveled to Seattle, and was invited to join the band. Novoselic said in retrospect, that was the moment. Once Dave joined, Nirvana was just like a tight machine. It just all fell into place, so I don't know if it was Providence or what, or something guided us to get together and uh, you could feel the impact right away. We had that sort of do-it-yourself punk rock ethic that we all shared. I don't think it would have worked if one person didn't have that. I mean, honestly, there was hardly any career ambition at all. We knew that there was no way we could be the biggest band in the world. We just wanted to play. And so, with a budget of $65,000 now signed to a major label, Nirvana recorded Nevermind at the legendary Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California, in May and June of 1991. To earn gas money to get to Los Angeles, they played a show where they performed Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time. You can find that up on YouTube. The band sent Vig rehearsal tapes prior to the sessions that featured songs recorded previously at Smart Studios, plus new songs including Smells Like Teen Spirit and Come As You Are, the first two singles from the album, ultimately. Speaking to New Music Express... Dave Grohl says the song was written at Nirvana's rehearsal space. This is Smells Like Teen Spirit now. He said, I like the riff that Kurt came up with because it's percussive. Those muted, stabbing strums in between the chords really lent to the pattern of the drum riff. To be honest, at that point, we were listening to a lot of Pixies. It was Bossa Nova era. We were just having fun, really. We were just coming up with new song after new song every day. Chris Novoselic, I believe, has boombox recordings of all of these riff ideas that were never used, songs that were shaped into songs for Nevermind, some of them. So when the group arrived in California, Nirvana spent a few days rehearsing and working on the song arrangements. The only recording carried over from the Smart Studio sessions was Polly, including Channing cymbal crashes. Once recording commenced, the band worked 8 to 10 hours a day. At the time of writing Nevermind, Cobain was listening to bands such as the Melvins, R.E.M., the Smithereens, and Pixies, and was writing songs that were more melodic. A key development was the single Sliver, released on Sub Pop in 1990 before Grohl joined, which Cobain said was, quote, like a statement in a way. I had to write a pop song and release it on a single to prepare people for the next record. I wanted to write more songs like that. Dave Grohl said the band at that point likened their music to children's music. Musically, we just wanted it to be almost like children's songs. I remember we would always make that analogy. We would always make, uh, we would always tell people that the songs were intended to be as simple as possible. 
The chord sequences that Kurt Cobain was coming up with used primarily power chords, and he wrote songs that combined pop hooks with really powerful, sometimes jarring guitar riffs. His aim for Nevermind's material was to sound like, quote, the knack and the Bay City Rollers getting molested by Black Flag and Black Sabbath. Dave Grohl talked about how important melody was to Kurt Cobain. Kurt used to say that music comes first and lyrics come second. And I think Kurt's, Kurt's main focus was melody. That presented a bit of a challenge for Kurt Cobain, but he was on top of that as well. He loved the pop hooks. He was a huge Beatles fan, but he didn't want things to sound too poppy. Here's label rep Gary Gersh, followed by Chris Novoselic, on what Kurt was doing. His plan was, you know, or his vision was, I'm going to make my art palatable to reach enough people to where I can actually affect something. I think that's one of the reasons Kurt wanted the record to sound heavy was because he knew the songs were really hooky, they were really poppy, lots of pop melodies. And he didn't want to come across as sounding too poppy, so if the guitars are roaring and really thick and really heavy and the drums are pounding, that dichotomy I think would work for him. That came to the way he sung the lyrics as well. Cobain was still working on the lyrics well into the recording of Nevermind. Additionally, his phrasing on the album, when you listen to it, it's often difficult to understand what he's even singing. Butch Vig says that clarity in Cobain's singing was not that important. Vig said, quote, even though you couldn't quite tell what he was singing about, you knew it was intense as hell. As a matter of fact, Cobain would later complain when rock journalists attempted to decipher his singing and extract meaning from the lyrics, writing, quote, Why in hell do journalists insist on coming up with a second-rate Freudian evaluation of my lyrics when 90% of the time they've transcribed them incorrectly? In the recording process, Novoselic and Grohl finished their tracks in days, while Cobain worked longer on guitar overdubs, vocals, and lyrics. He sometimes finished lyrics just minutes before they were recorded. Vig recalled that Cobain was often reluctant to record overdubs, which they did use and which made the record sound absolutely huge. It's a very key part of the production. But Kurt was persuaded to double track his vocals when he was told that John Lennon did it by Vig. And of course, Kurt being a huge Beatles fan, he was in. The sessions generally went well, but Vig said Cobain would become difficult at times. Quote, he'd be great for an hour and then he'd sit in a corner and say nothing for an hour. Vig actually used the difficulties with Cobain and to great benefit on the song Something in the Way. Something in the Way was definitely the hardest track to record in Nevermind. After three or four takes of trying to cut it live in the main room, um, it just wasn't happening. Kurt came into the control room. Out of frustration, he sat on the couch and he basically said, it needs to sound like this. He laid in his back and he started playing the guitar and he was barely singing. It was coming out almost a whisper. I was like, okay, stop, stop, stop. And I quick grabbed a couple of mics and plugged them in. I unplugged the phone. I turned the fans off in the tape machine and said, this is it. Just do what you think you need to do right now. And I literally held my breath for three minutes while he sang it. I mean, it was so quiet and yet it was so powerful. And that was the core of the track. Now, once all the recording was finished, now comes the mixing process. And both Butch Vig and the guys in the band were unhappy with Vig's initial mixes, decided to bring in somebody else to oversee the mixing. DGC supplied a list of possible options, including Scott Litt, who was known for his work with R.E.M., and Ed Stasium, known for his work with the Ramones and the Smithereens. 
but Cobain was concerned about bringing in well-known producers to mix and instead chose Andy Wallace, who had co-produced Slayer's 1990 album Seasons in the Abyss. Novoselic recalled, we said, right on, because those Slayer records were so heavy. Wallace's mixes most notably altered the drum and guitar sounds compared to Vig's mixes. And according to Wallace and Vig, the band loved the results. As a matter of fact, after hearing those mixes, Chris Novoselic, and then you'll hear Butch Vig as well, starting to think that, first of all, we've done something really special here, and Vig saying, maybe this is destined for a bigger audience than we'd initially hoped. I remember Butch putting up the rough mixes after Kurt laid the vocals down, and he'd be like, listen to this song. And he'd like crank it in the control room, and it'd just be like, it would just come out, like just like a barrage, like, wow, did we do that? You know, it's just like, how did we do that? I remember around the time we finished doing rough mixes and, and listening to everything back to back that I thought all the songs were really, really strong. And I kept thinking, man, maybe there's an audience out there. We, we might go beyond their, their sub-pop crowd. You know, maybe we can sell a couple hundred thousand records. It's funny, you know, after the release of Nevermind, members of the band expressed dissatisfaction with the production for its perceived commercial sound, as happy as they were at the time. Cobain said, looking back on the production of Nevermind, I'm embarrassed by it now. He said this. He says it's closer to a Motley Crue record than it is a punk rock record. In 2011, Butch Vig said that the band had loved Nevermind when they finished it. He said Cobain had later criticized it in the press because you can't really go, hey, I love our record and I'm glad it sold 10 million copies. That's just not cool to do, especially for Kurt. I think he felt like he wanted to do something a little bit more primal. Now, the title of the album wasn't always Nevermind. It was tentatively titled Sheep, and that was something Cobain created as an inside joke directed toward the people he expected to buy the album. A little insulting, a little cynical. As a matter of fact, he wrote a fake ad for Sheep in his own personal journal that read, quote, because you want to not, because everyone else is. Think about that one, because it takes a bit. Novoselic has said that the inspiration for that title, Sheep, was the band's cynicism about the public's reaction to Operation Desert Storm. As recording ended, Cobain grew tired of that title and suggested to Novoselic that the album be named Nevermind. Cobain liked the title because it was a metaphor for his attitude on life and because it was grammatically incorrect. And also, it appears at the end of that lyric from Smells Like Teen Spirit. The word Nevermind also echoes the Sex Pistols, Nevermind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, one of Cobain's favorite albums. Now to that album cover art, which has been in the news again lately. It shows that naked baby boy, Spencer Eldon, swimming underwater with a U.S. dollar bill on a fish hook in front of him, just out of his reach. According to Cobain, he conceived that idea while watching a TV show on water births with Dave Grohl. Cobain mentioned it to Geffen's art director, Robert Fisher. Fisher found some stock footage of underwater births, but they were too graphic for the record company to use. Furthermore, the stock house that controlled the photo of the swimming baby said they wanted $7,500 a year for its use. Nope. Instead, Fisher sent a photographer, Kirk Weddle, to a pool for babies to take pictures. Five shots resulted, and the band settled on the image of four-month-old Spencer Eldon, the son of a friend of Weddle. Geffen was concerned that the infant's penis, visible in the photo, would cause offense, and prepared an alternate cover without it. They relented when Cobain said the only compromise he would accept would be a sticker covering the penis that read, quote, If you're offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile. The cover has since been recognized as one of the most famous album covers in popular music. But this past August, Eldon filed a lawsuit against Cobain's estate, the surviving members of Nirvana, 
the record labels, the photographer, claiming that the use of his likeness on the album cover was done without his consent or that of his legal guardians, and that it violated federal child pornography statutes, and that it resulted in, quote, lifelong damages. Eldon said that by refusing to censor the artwork with a sticker, Nirvana had failed to protect him from child sexual exploitation. The lawsuit also states, quote, Cobain chose the image depicting Spencer like a sex worker, grabbing for a dollar bill that is positioned dangling from a fishhook in front of his nude body with his penis explicitly displayed. Attorney Jamie White criticized the lawsuit and called it frivolous and really offensive to true victims of child sexual abuse, emphasizing the capitalism represented on the cover by mentioning about it that, quote, this is a money grab. Fordham Law School professor James Cohen claimed that, quote, the context doesn't suggest that it's pornography. Both experts concluded that Eldon's actual intention was to make money with the lawsuit. Of course, that's just their opinions. A judge will ultimately decide. Nevermind was released on September 24, 1991. American record stores received an initial shipment of just over 46,000 copies, while 35,000 copies were shipped in the UK where Bleach had been successful. The lead single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, had been released on September 10th with the intention of building a base among alternative rock fans, while the next single, Come As You Are, would possibly garner more attention. Geffen hoped that Nevermind would sell around 250,000 copies. Here are a couple of Geffen label reps talking about what they thought and hoped for with the album's reception. We predicted or hoped the projection for Nevermind would reach 50,000 copies and that was based on the fact that Sonic Youth's Goo album had sold 100,000 or so to that point and uh, we felt that if Nirvana could do half of what Sonic Youth had done that would be success. And when I was introducing the record to the to the company that I said to them that you know if we worked really really hard and we got a little bit lucky with the video and the band didn't implode that, you know, over the course of a year, so we could probably sell a half a million records. Of course, it sold just a few more than that. Nevermind debuted on the Billboard 200 at number 144. Geffen shipped about half of the initial U.S. pressing to the American Northwest, where it sold out quickly and was unavailable for days. As a matter of fact, the company put production of all other albums on hold in order to fulfill demand in the region. Over the next few months, sales increased significantly as Smells Like Teen Spirit unexpectedly became more and more popular. Nevermind became Nirvana's first number one album on January 11, 1992 replacing Michael Jackson's Dangerous at the top of the Billboard charts. By this time, Nevermind was selling approximately 300,000 copies per week. The album was certified gold and platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America in November of 1991. It took 10 years, but it was eventually certified diamond in Canada for 1 million units sold. It also went six times platinum in the UK. And it all happened because Kurt Cobain had a vision. His message was for a specific group of tormented people that that you know that he knew were out there that were struggling and and he knew that if he could reach them in a way that there were a lot of them waiting to to hear it you know and uh, he was right you know he knew all along Nevermind is often credited with initiating a resurgence of punk culture among teenagers and young adults of Generation X. In addition, it was responsible in part for bringing both grunge and alternative rock music to a mainstream audience and ending the dominance of so-called hair metal.
The album has sold over 30 million copies worldwide, making it one of the best-selling albums of all time. Among the most acclaimed albums in the history of music, in 2004, the Library of Congress added it to the National Recording Registry, which collects, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically important recordings. Novoselic simply looks back on Nevermind this way. Three people made that record. You know, a drum set and a bass and guitar. And um, it's undeniably the best thing I ever did in my whole life. And now, Nevermind, Nirvana's second album, which helped change the music business by ushering in the grunge era, is our latest inductee into the drive rock of fame. I'm Kelly Parker.